0: Would you want to know every single minute of your life and how it was going to be lived out? Not so that you could change it, but just so you could know how it's all going to be lived out. See, most people want to know the future so that they can fix it. That's not what we're talking about here. We can't fix something that already happened or something that is happening. See, our concept of time is wrong, at least theologically. And we argue about free will and fate being on both ends. When the truth is far simpler and it's far more beautiful. And by the way, it's not the least bit scary if we know that it's in God's hands. One God, three persons, mystery, unity. One pastor summarized it this way. The picture of God that this view leaves us with is of a being whose life is too full to exist only at one moment at a time. And I'm not going to speak for you, but... That's the kind of God I want. In fact, that's the kind of life that I want. A life that is too full to exist only at one moment at a time. We often allow our life to be defined one moment at a time. And if we aren't careful, we get so trapped in the past that we lose the present and the future. But if we get too focused on the future, we lose the past and the present. And a present without a past or a future is pretty much empty. When asked about the reality of God, C.S. Lewis wrote the following. Listen carefully, because it opens up a beautiful way for us to understand, in the simplest way, the Trinity. What we call tomorrow is visible to God in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for Him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them, because though you have lost yesterday, He is not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them, because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. He knows your tomorrow's actions, because he is already in tomorrow and can't simply watch you. The moment at which you have done it is already now for him. Yeah, I'll let you look that quote up because, first of all, it's amazing. But secondly, it's a little bit mind-bending. Last week when Jesus said, you know, I still have a lot to tell you, but right now you're not ready for it. I hope that didn't upset you. I mean, I know we get frustrated with God. Nobody likes to be told, you aren't ready for this. But sometimes it's true. And if there is one word that ties the past, the present, and the future all together, it's perspective. When Jesus spoke those particular words to the disciples, when he said, you're not ready for this, it was the eve of the crucifixion. Now, he'd been telling the disciples about the cross all along, but they weren't ready for it because they didn't have any perspective. St. Paul has a verse for us. It's found in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by Father into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now most of us want to jump straight to hope. We want to be wherever we're going without all the in-between. Have your first day of kindergarten and then graduate from college the next day. Eliminate the nine months of pregnancy. Go straight from the baby shower to the birth, or maybe even their graduation. Start a job one day, retire the next. And yet, it's all those in-between moments and days that actually define our life. We tend to believe it's all the big moments, graduation, retirement, birth, deaths. But the truth is, they do not and cannot and should not define our life. They simply measure it. And there is a big difference between measuring something and defining it. It's hard for someone to understand our perspective if they haven't lived through what we have lived through. And that's why when somebody says, I know how you feel, unless we know that they really do know how we feel, we just want to tell them, no, you don't. And by the way, if they really do know how we feel, chances are they wouldn't say the words. They'd just come over and hug us because at times like those, words don't mean much. Perspective is possible only after you survive whatever you're going through. And a complete and total perspective might never come. Or it may take days or weeks or months or even years. I want to go back in time and tell my mom that I finally understand how much she really did for me. I want to go back and tell all my teachers, I'm sorry. I want to spend more time with my kids when they were little. I want to listen to more stories from the Kapuna. I want to go back and I want to do so much to fix the past, but I can't. And you can't get perspective when you're in the middle of whatever you're in the middle of, which is why at that time I didn't understand how important those things were. And so our prayer needs to be something like, Lord, let me learn something about what I'm going through right now. And then don't let me forget it. If someone were to ask you, what is the highlight of your week? I doubt any of you would say the Sunday sermon. Oh, there are pastors who, by the way, if you told them that, they would believe you. But they also believe in the tooth fairy. And just so you know, you're not alone. I went through the Bible. I poured through it. And I only found a couple of places where somebody hungered and thirsted for the Sunday sermon. Or in their case, the Saturday sermon. I found a lot of places where they hungered and thirsted for God's word for God's presence, but the Sunday Sermon, not so much. Regular corporate worship doesn't exist until late in the Old Testament. The priests made sacrifices for the people all day, all night, and on holy days, the people gathered and they made sacrifices. But you don't see people getting together at 8.15 and 10.45 a.m. until 3.13 A.D. after Constantine allows the Christian church to become legalized. Before that, there was always someone at the temple, somebody at the synagogue, somebody you could talk to, swap stories with, talk about the Bible with. It was more of a community of believers who came and went on their schedule rather than an organized worship service. Now, the purpose of corporate worship is to bring the Bible and your life together. It lets a breath of fresh air in. It makes you think. It gives you a chance to say thank you. It lets your heart and your soul sing a little, be reminded of who you are. what you have to live for. This is why John 3.17 is so important. I know we like John 3.16, but John 3.17 might be exactly what we really need to hear. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what does that verse say to you? Years ago, there was a preacher who decided to personalize John 3.16. He says, all right, take the world, take the word world out and put your name in. God so loved John. God so loved Michelle. God so loved Zadok. God so loved Titus that he gave his only begotten son. Now, maybe we need to do the same with John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn, insert name, but to save him or her through Jesus. The only reason you would ever have to be afraid in this world is if you have completely and totally and irrevocably abandoned God. And by the way, if you've done that, you probably aren't afraid. You're so apathetic or so angry or so numb that you don't care. But if you're trying to figure out life and death and heaven and hell and all those in-between moments, what this verse says is that God is on your side. I rarely remember my dreams, but the other night, I dreamt that I was trying to get home. I needed to get home. I desperately needed to get home. And the only way, apparently, was on this unfamiliar airline. And when I got to the airport, they made me stand in long, crowded lines. And then for some reason, I had to walk up this really tight spiral staircase, and everybody was going so slowly. And there was security checkpoint after security checkpoint, and they were asking the same questions, and you just had to wait forever. And when I finally got to the gate, the customer service said, sorry, this flight's full. In fact, all these flights are full for months on end. Have a nice day. And then turned and went to the next customer. I walked over and started to cry. And that's when an agent from a familiar airline showed up and said, you're trying to get home? We can help you with that. We've got a repositioning flight headed that way in just a few minutes. Oh, and by the way, very few people are going to be on it. So you can spread out in first class and just relax because we've got you covered. Yeah. I know, that's never going to happen with an airline, but that's what God is saying here. You see, God isn't here to yell at us unless we need to be yelled at. And if He's yelling at us, it's only to get us turned around so that He can love us and forgive us and, most importantly, save us. For people of faith, living in and through time and events while trying to both discover and grasp our purpose and calling, can only happen alongside other people of faith. Faith cannot be practiced alone. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 27 says. Hebrews 10 says, Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he is arrested and led off to be crucified, listen to this prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. By the way, it's a lot longer than this, and I invite you, in fact, I encourage you to read it on your own. It says, I pray for them, us, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then you drop down a little further in the prayer, and he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The main parts of the prayer are these. As followers of Jesus, our life is not going to be easy. Jesus is asking the Father to protect us and to sanctify us by his truth. By the way, the word sanctify means to purify. It means to remove all the impurities. He doesn't want us taken out of the world because we have a calling and a purpose here. And to accomplish our calling, we can't do it alone. And perhaps the most important part of the verse, at least to me, is where Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. You know, the purpose of worship is to bring us into the presence of God. We are brought into his presence so that he can change us. Now, this is really important because some people think that we go into the presence of God to change God. In other words, we're going to just keep bothering him like that widow in Jesus' gospel lessons that just keeps bothering and bothering until God finally says, fine, you can have whatever you want. But the truth is, we go into the presence of God so that God can change us. It's not easy. But this is what we're talking about today. When we talk about the Trinity, a lot of people want to say, well, you know that whole one and three, three and one thing? It's impossible to understand. Or when you read the Athanasian Creed, which is filled with the words uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty. I mean, let's face it, it is a little overwhelming. My mind has no problem accepting those things. I may not fully understand them, but I love God, and so I accept them. What I really struggle with, though, is there unity? How can they have complete and total unity in everything? Let me read to you from John chapter 5. Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded, you know, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. And last week, did you hear the words of Jesus? When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. When we are drawn into the presence of God, it begins the process of making us one, just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Einstein said, perhaps seriously, perhaps sarcastically, I want to know how God created the world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. I want to know his mind. Everything else is just details. I started to write in the sermon, yeah, I want to know the mind of God. Everything else is just details. then I realized, actually I do know the mind of God. I know He created the universe. I know God is perfect. I know God is uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty because those are the very definition of God. But knowing the mind of God brings anxiety and a feeling of unworthiness and a deep pain for all the things I've failed at, all those moments that I can't go back and fix. In other words, knowing the mind of God simply points out that God is perfect and I am very, very imperfect. And so what I truly desire is to know the heart of God. And that's what John 3.16 and John 3.17 are all about. God so loved you and me that he sent his only son into our world, not to tell us how badly we messed up or how much of a mess we've made of our lives and of our world, but to save us because that's the heart of God. When St. John says God is love, as Inigo Montoya would say, it doesn't mean what you think it means. To be loved by God is to be drawn into His presence, and slowly, very slowly, we begin to understand His heart. The Holy Spirit's job is to help us set aside this world and all the things that we think are so important, to to begin to see life, the universe, and everything from an eternal perspective, which includes life, the universe, and everything, but only as waypoints on the journey of a life that does not end when we die. It does more than that. Because it's really just beginning. To know the mind and heart of God is only possible through faith, and faith comes through endless hours and days of letting God be God. I want you to think about that. What would it take for you to let God be God of your life? And this takes us back to the opening quote. C.S. Lewis said, what we call tomorrow is visible to God in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because though you have lost yesterday, he is not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. He knows your tomorrow's actions because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. The moment at which you have done it is already now for him. Psalm 139 says, every day of my life was written in your book before any of of them came to be. Faith allows me to take a deep breath, to take another step, and then just say thank you with my heart and my life. God doesn't just know how many hairs are on our head. That's just the details. He knows our heart, and he can't wait for us to know his. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit,